0: Welcome to Beyond the Seminar, where I have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting the UC Davis Biomedical Engineering Department Seminar Series. Today, I am joined by Dr. Chris Hernandez, a professor in the Sibley School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Cornell University. So, welcome to the program, Chris. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you gave an amazing talk at our seminar series this morning, um, and it was focused about how your team is studying the influence between the gut microbiome and bone and joint diseases and amongst all these other cool topics. so for me, that doesn't seem like an obvious pairing, thinking about your, the bacteria in your, in your gut and uh, bone health. So how did you come to this cool interface of science?
1: Yeah, so I have a couple stories about how I, do, how I did that. And um, so the, the credit I'm gonna give entirely to my wife, who is a gastroenterologist, oh. and she was doing some reading, uh, you know, for her medical uh, continuing medical education, and she came across this fecal microbiota transplant, mm-hmm. which is an extremely effective treatment for a C. diff infection. And she said to me, Chris, this is what you should be doing. It's so exciting. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer, right? And um, I'm not a microbiologist. Um, but, you know, started kicking off the reading. And the more I read about it, the more fascinating it was. And, uh, and the more I knew it was going to have an effect on the musculoskeletal system. And uh, when we got into it, there had already been like the first paper or so suggesting that it could influence bone and, uh, and so I knew this was, this was gonna be a good hit or, or something to, that would be really beneficial to the field.
0: So um, for people who aren't studying bone, I mean, you're thinking about things like bone growth or recovery after injuries or just as you're getting older and the microbiome is
1: affecting all areas of these essentially? Yeah, so when we started out, you know, historically I'm known for understanding how bones break. So thinking about how, how do cracks form in bone, how does bone remodel? That was another topic area that was really exciting to us. And, uh, and then we just stopped and said, you know what, let's see what the gut microbiome is doing to all of these systems. So
0: the, the gut is far away from, yeah. let's say like your knees yeah. <laughs> or, you know, bones that may go wrong, uh, as, as you age. So how are they interacting across yeah. this big distance?
1: Yeah. So we, you know, when I first got into this, it was really hard because the microbiome people, are, are spectacular and they're mostly microbial ecologists or maybe immunologists. And so when they were thinking about how the microbiome influences the body, everything came down to like, what, how are those microbes interacting with each other inside the gut? Or they were thinking about how does it influence things at the gut lining? And so if you look at the, at the, since the microbiome sort of came back, it, it's been studied for a hundred years, but it came back after Next Generation Sequencing was released in mm. 2005. And the first studies, all of them were doing were like obesity, diabetes. They were looking at how the microbiome was influencing nutrient absorption, and maybe they were looking at uh, immune cell populations, at the gut lining, or so, you know, something, like, something very simple like that. So it took us a lot of digging to come up with these potential mechanisms. So one, one way we look at it is that the gut microbiome is influencing nutrition, so it can influence nutrient absorption, and then there are some vitamins that the gut microbes can make and can get distributed systemically. And the second is a regulation of the immune system. So the, the interactions between these commensal microbes and immune cells and, and at the endothelial barrier, but then those cells can then influence uh, cells throughout the body, either by migrating or sending cytokine signaling out. And the third, um, I call it translocation. I don't know that the microbiome community says the same thing, but it's, it's where these microbes are getting through the gut lining and having a, a, a local inflammatory effect that's different than they would have if they were inside the gut. Um, or outside the gut lining, I should say, uh, or there's these pieces of dead bacteria that get, uh, that, that s- are regularly sneak through the gut endothelial barrier and are in the bloodstream. And so we think one of those three mechanisms uh, or, or some component of those three mechanisms is how it gets down to the bones and joints and probably also a number of other organs in the body.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's the it strikes me as really complex. Uh, obviously the microbiome is known to influence all these other things and has been studied. Um, now you you're expanding on that saying, oh now it's plus the whole musculoskeletal system. It's like these things are so fundamental to, to how we are. I find that so interesting. Maybe in you know, in your own words, w- really what is the microbiome and what yeah. are we talking about here?
1: Yeah so the microbiome are these uh, microbial organisms that inhabit the body and in humans, right that's all every every surface of the human body that is in contact with the external environment. So, you know, the oral microbiome is a famous one, the skin microbiome, there's a microbiome in the lungs. Um, The vast majority of the human microbiome by bacteria is, uh, by bacterial load is in the gut. And so the gastrointestinal system, and remember the gastrointestinal system, you think about it being inside you, but really it's an external interface between the outside world where you eat your food and the inside of your body. So we're kind of living on our internal surface yeah. <laughs> down there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and millions
0: of these. Yeah, trillions. Trillions, trillions. and yeah. all different types and and flavors and and every person is different and communities are different and all these kind of things. Yeah. So a lot of what you talked about in your talk was really basic research. Um, well, not basic, I would say kind of translational already getting into mouse models. So studying these and living organisms. Uh, which, of course, are different than than humans, but that's a good place to start. And talking about these interventions in, mm-hmm. in the microbiome. So broadly, how is your lab, you know, tuning the microbiome to then study yeah. these
1: differences? Yeah. So we approached it use, in our first experiments using the simplest way of manipulating the gut microbiome in the, in the mouse, which is uh, putting antibiotics in the, in the drinking water of the mouse. And it sounds really simple. Um, it's easy to implement. I mean, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. Which antibiotics do you choose? You choose antibiotics that aren't well absorbed in the gut lining so you don't have to think about what that molecule is doing downstream or when it gets distributed systemically. Um, and then you th- spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, exactly, you know, what, what kind of changes are we going to see in the, in the population of, the, of those microbes? Are we trying to wipe out most of the gut microbiome, ablate most of it, or are we just trying to change the composition? And so we're doing a little bit of both. We'll do some experiments where we try and ablate the entire gut microbiome in the mice We'll do some where we just use a narrow spectrum antibiotic, and then just wipe out some segments of the gut microbiome. Um, it's not the most controlled way of of splitting up that microbial community. Um, the microbiologists will use the word the term fractionations or how you divide up portions of that community. Uh, it's not really controlled, but it it's at this point where it's a, it allows us to get these very distinct microbial populations among our study groups and then relate those populations to the phenotype we see.
0: And how translatable is that to humans? Are we very, uh, a similar enough microbiome, or can you do these kind of um, microbiome
1: interventions in humans? Well, I mean, we, we're we already doing them daily when you see people take uh, oral antibiotics. Right. Um, um, but it's, uh, you know, what we're searching for in the mice are these mechanisms. So at the end of the day, we're interested in the mechanisms that that's happening. And the microbiome of the mouse, gut microbiome of the mouse, is very different from the gut microbiome of human. And so, um, at the end of the day, we're going to be looking for these. Once we understand these mechanisms, then we'll be able to find analogous mechanisms that are happening in humans, and then and then try and implement them for a, for a human treatment.
0: So, another thing, you uh, fascinating thing, in in my opinion, that you talked about is that the microbiome is not only playing a role in kind of the bone formation and the mm-hmm. normal bone processes, but uh, in events like orthopedic surgery. Yeah or implanting a prosthetic, the bacteria also are playing a huge role. So can you talk about how your group is addressing some of these issues?
1: Yeah, and, and uh, it gets confusing sometimes because normally when you talk about a surgery and you talk about bacteria, you're always you're talking about infection and that's infection local to the surgery. And so you're trying to, you're worried that some bacteria are gonna get into the in surgical wound and then, and then reside on the implant surface or, or in the body after the surgery and cause problems for the patient down, line, down the line. And so what, what we did, though, was, was something different. We recognized that the gut microbiome can influence the host immune system. So these are commensal microbes in the gut, but they're tra- constantly training the host immune system. There's so many immune cells right there at the gut lining. And so we looked at the possibility that the that the microbes in the gut are training the host immune system, and then those immune cells are going around the body and then when surgery happens, it's those immune cells there that help prevent that infection from occurring. And so we were looking at how the gut microbiome might be training those immune, immune cells and then having an effect on the success of the surgery or infection rates after the surgery. You know, the, the, especially the orthopedic surgeries, we've learned long, long ago to try and keep things as sterile as possible. And the orthopedic surgeons, they wear space suits, they have their oxygens piped in to them through a tube in the back um they we do everything that's humanly possible to prevent that infection and it's and it's uh it's reduced infection rates below 1% in uh for hip and knee replacements so it's a really safe procedure um but when you look at the sheer volume of hip and knee replacements done say in the United States every year that's a lot of people who end up getting an infection when it's just less than one per even just one less than 1% so
0: i think is your vision for this in in the long term like a a type of probiotic that someone would take or the um, drug in the form of um,
1: what the bacteria are releasing via yeah. the mechanisms that you're finding. Yeah, I think the first applications are going to be these probiotics and, and I know you know, once we did this paper in, in mice and I know there's orthopedic surgeons, they're so desperate for anything to reduce infection risk that I'm, I know there's a lot of orthopedic surgeons now who are already prescribing mm. probiotics for a couple weeks before people go in for surgeries, that's that's our concept is that you can do something that's, that modifies the gut microbiome and then um, generates that healthy immune response when when surgery happens. And it's it could get tricky, right? Because if you have too much, too uh, too large of an inflammatory response just to surgery, that can be a problem. Right? You have too little, and then in, and then healing doesn't happen right, and there, and infection risk is increased. So there's, you know, getting the patient back to that balance. And the I guess the truth is that a lot of the patients who go in for hip and knee replacement. They have other medical conditions that are challenging. You know, maybe they've got diabetes. Um, maybe they have other medical conditions that, um, that make it harder for, for the body to respond in a beneficial way after surgery. And so you know, to the degree that a manipulation of the microbiome can, can make that response better, it's, it's relatively cheap and, uh, and relatively safe.
0: Yeah. Probiotics are already a thing, right? Over the counter. Yeah, I mean, yeah. are these regulated well or are, are they, in your opinion, of the kind of targeted applications that you have? I mean, do these exist already?
1: Yeah. I mean, the probiotics exist. Um, they're not regulated the way pharmaceuticals are though, right? They're, they're considered a n- nutritional supplement. And so there's a lot of uh, poor, of, of bad actors out there. I mean, the classic is you go and you buy a bottle of kombucha, right? And it says, oh, this is this probiotic kombucha. And it's it's citrus flavored, and I'm thinking, you know, the the acid in the citrus is going to kill so many <laughs> of those microbes that you want to have alive in your probiotic. So it's not really a probiotic; it's a it's a uh, postbiotic. You know, it's a it's dead bacteria, right? It's um, so it's not really a probiotic; more like a prebiotic, which is something that that is maybe food for the organisms you want alive. But so there's a lot of these bad actors out there, and so th- I think that's really holding back the um, the uh, development of probiotic type treatments. And so, but I think, I think it's coming again. It's so safe, right? There's, um, I don't know that there's ever been a situation where somebody's oral probiotic has had an adverse effect on them, um, beyond, you know, nothing serious anyways.
0: That's exciting. So beyond the stuff that you're doing in your lab, is there, you know, something on the horizon, maybe in your lab or, or outside that you're very excited about in this
1: area? Yeah. So, uh, back to these mechanisms of how the gut microbiome is influencing, uh, the body, and, you know, I, I listed out the three ways that, that, I, that we think are currently happening. But um, there was just a, a recent paper came out um, from Alana Brito's group. Uh, she's at Cornell. And they were looking at, they did a computational analysis of protein-protein interactions, or I, I should say candidate protein-protein interactions. So they took a list of all the microbes, all the proteins made by gut microbes, and then a list of all the proteins in the human body and cross-reference them to ask which of these could potentially react with one another. And so now they have, now they have this short list of, of bacterial proteins that could be having a direct effect. And so instead of thinking about these microbe-associated molecular patterns getting into the bloodstream and then having an effect on the host, there's a possibility we're talking about these you know other microbial proteins that then uh, cause a specific reaction in certain cells of the human body. And so I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of discoveries in a lot of different organ systems um, it from deriving from that work where we're seeing exactly how the microbiome is regulating the host. Sounds like a good time to be studying microbiology. <laughs> oh, it is, yeah. You know, it, it, when I got into the microbiology stuff, it's just, it's just so fascinating because this entire world that, you know, being raised as a biomedical engineer, thinking about orthopedics, you know, we talked about bone cells and we talked about chondrocytes and we talked about some of these other cell types. But then to see just the breadth that's out there in the microbiology community, um, it's just amazing.
0: So, like functionally, I mean, um, you already had a very established lab where you're studying yeah. bone for years, um, and then you make a huge pivot into yeah. this whole additional system, and now you're marrying these two together in a really unique program. But how did you make
1: the choice to kind of make that pivot? Yeah, you know, I I was I had thought for a number of years that I'm going to have to do something different, um, and uh, and was looking around for the right different thing to do. And I guess I'll tell you a story because it's a great story. Um, I was, I was thinking about what what should we do differently? And, and cell biomechanics is something that popped up. There's a lot of great work in cell biomechanics going on in ortho, in orthopedics and, um, and in biomedical engineering. And I just felt like, gosh, I feel like I'm 10 years behind everybody who jumped into that. And then um I went and saw a talk, and the talk was given by Subra Suresh. Uh, this was years ago, and he was dean, at, dean at, of engineering at MIT at the time. And uh, he gave this talk about blood cell mechanics, and he, had, he was looking at how the blood cells deform using microfluidic devices. And, and I remember at the end of the talk saying, like, gosh, this is, that was a great talk. This is just really amazing stuff. And then I stopped and said, wait a second, this is the guy who made his name studying how cracks move through ceramics. In fact, he wrote the book on that. That's, <laughs> that's, that's his book that everybody uses to understand that phenomenon. How did this guy get into cell biomechanics? And then I realized he picked the only cell in the human body that you don't have to culture and that has no internal structures. <laughs> so he started, he started with the simplest model that he could to build up. And then I started asking myself, well, what has got what is easy to culture and doesn't have an internal structure? And so then, then I started thinking about microbes. That's awesome.
0: I mean, there must have been, you know, you have to buy equipment and get trained students and probably okay. find collaborators and learn yourself. I mean, how many years are we talking here to make this transition?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So the first, and I went into the lab and did this. Um, the first microbial cultures we did were probably in 2000, 2010, 2010. And then our first paper uh, using microbial biomechanics was 2014. And our first microbiome and bone study was published in 2017. So there was a, I think there's faster ways to do it, but, <laughs> um, uh, probably, but, uh, but we built up a, a pool of collaborators. And the, the pool of collaborators has just been getting bigger and bigger. We had to build up that pool of collaborators. And then I felt like I had to learn a lot of this stuff. And so, you know, so there were, we were many times when I was in the lab with the pipettes, yeah. doing it. And normally, you know, the graduate students get scared when the PI comes into the lab, <laughs> with the pipette, especially more senior PI. Um, uh, but, uh, but it was something I had to do to figure out exactly how how am I going to teach a student to do this? I need to, to know something about it.
0: I, I mean, it's a big leap and probably there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think, um, you know, the data has borne out and you're, you're, you guys are discovering lots of cool things. But in those couple years uh, in, in between, I mean, is doubt creeping in? Are you thinking like, oh, this is a mistake or so just keep your head down, you know it's going to work.
1: You know, there were, there were times like that, but um, this, is, this is why they give us tenure, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, like, you know, what does it mean if it doesn't work out? It means my lab's smaller for a little while before I go back and do something. Let's say it didn't work out, right? My lab would be smaller for a little while before it gets bigger again. You know, before right. I, I realign and do some and do more traditional stuff, so you didn't see it as too big of a risk to just oh, try it was, something. It was there. risky, right? And there were some harrowing times when you're like, "Oh, you know, where's you know, looking at the budget and and wondering like, okay, like, um, who, how are we going to pay everybody's salary next mm-hmm. year, right? Or a year and a half from now?" Um, but uh, you know, you keep at it, and that's the only way real innovation happens. Studying uh, biological
0: systems that need to be maintained over days and life in person. Uh, I, I imagine your lab was sort of probably disproportionately affected by the COVID pandemic and the shutdown. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. We did. Um, we did have, uh, you know, COVID really just killed one entire project we had going on just because, um, we couldn't guarantee that all the core centers and the surgical suites and things like that would be open. And, you know, for the timeline, we had very, you know, we we're doing a longitudinal study using MR imaging in rabbits. Right. So we had to get the right age rabbit. We had to start set up the surgery. We had to set up all of the MR imaging and just the, just the not knowing when things would be open or not, um, just made it really hard to finish that project. But um,
0: how about yeah. the students in your group? How was the, yeah. how, how did you guys kind of persevere through that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it was tough on some of the students. I think, um, you know, at least some students just refocused entirely on computational work mm-hmm. started redoing, doing a lot of computational work. And that, they could make a lot of progress there, but at the same time, it's still kind of isolating because you're stuck in your apartment, um, you know, logging in remotely to do the computational work. Um, but we were able to keep a good amount of the work going. Um, you know, Ithaca's in this small college town and, uh, and you know, dominated by the university. And so there's, uh, we, we were able to get back into the lab relatively fast in a, in a controlled manner. So good. that was nice. Yeah. So uh, where are you from? So I grew up in Fresno,
0: so oh, I'm a Central local. Valley
1: boy, and uh, yeah. So like uh,
0: born and raised and up born to and high raised. school and everything? Yeah, born and raised, yeah. Cool. Um, and uh, brothers and sisters? What's, yeah. What was your family like? So I, I've got an older brother and a younger sister. Okay. okay. And, uh, all, all like top-level engineers? or are... No, no. My, my <laughs>
1: older brother uh, studied communications and now uh, teaches uh, a TV and film production at a public high school in the L.A. area. Cool. And my younger sister, um, uh, studied theater oh, wow. and drama. So, uh, yeah, A little she, more artsy than there. Yeah. The, yeah the, the rest of the, the family's road. more artsy yeah. than me, but, uh, So how did you get interested in science? You know, um, I, you know, I was just always interested in it. I, you know, even, uh, as a, as a kid, you know, when computers were still a hobby, you know, you, you may not remember this, but in, in. In the early eighties, computer there there would be like magazines for home one was called home computing and my parents got it from me and my brother. And it was like because writing computer programs was, at home was like a hobbyist thing. You know what I mean? You think about people who'd make their transistor radios and stuff in the in the fifties or sixties. And it was the same thing in the early eighties. And um and I I just I just thought it was great that I could, you know, make this code and make things happen mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And so I I was always sort of fascinated by that. I'm sure the publishers
0: of that magazine would like to know the <laughs> legacy of the kind of things they stimulated back then. I know. I know. So, were you good good in science in school? And yeah, just you, yeah. was the vision always to be a scientist? Did you kind of have an idea of what that meant?
1: Yeah. So, I um, I didn't know what it meant to be a scientist at all. Um, but everybody just told me, well, you know, engineering's a good a good uh, career. It pays well, and you seem to have a knack for for doing math and doing the the your computer stuff. So just keep at it, and uh, and so always looking for opportunities to um to get more experience in that. And but I still even then like started starting college as an engineer. It's just like, well, how does this all work? You know, it's sort of it's still sort of a foreign environment in some ways.
0: So yeah, let's talk about that more because yeah. you made a huge leap. I mean, you're from Central Valley in California, uh, from the same small kind of rural city here, yeah. and then you go to Harvard University yeah. for your undergrad. Yeah. So how did I mean? What was it like
1: to get into Harvard? Oh, it was um it was, it was an adventure, right? I think, and I, but I was ready for that adventure. I was like, gosh, I want to live in a big city. I want to be in, in this big environment. And uh, I actually, you know, I flew out, my parents flew out with me for, um, for freshman week and I'd never been to Massachusetts in my life. I just showed up for freshman week to start in and just had that attitude. Like, look, I'm going to do something exciting and it's going to be different and there's going to be snow and there's going to be these other things that, uh, that are really weird. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but I ended up having a great time. And what did you major in? So I, I majored in engineering, okay. which also was was sort of an unusual thing. I want to say there were, um, they have a, they have two programs in engineering there. They have a bachelor of science program, which is kind of like everybody, you know, like the engineering program here at Davis or, or at Cornell, and they have a bachelor of arts in engineering there too, which has uh, a number of fewer classes. And it's sort of intended for people going on to law school or business school, that kind of thing, or people who learn engineering, but don't um, plan on being a practicing engineer necessarily. And I did the, I did the the bachelor of science one, which was, you know, it was, it was different, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I want to say there were 12 of us who graduated with that degree when wow. I finished. So small program.
0: So when does the biology start creeping in?
1: Um you know, I, I, started doing the biomechanics as an undergraduate. So, okay. uh, you know, was, in a,
0: a position, volunteer position in a lab or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I was, um, you know, the right way to put it is, you know, I was interested in biomechanics from the time I was a kid. I read too many Iron Man comic books, <laughs> right. And thought I'd be making some kind of Iron Man suit for yeah. people. Um, I think I was about 20 years too early in that, in that stand because people are doing yeah, that now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I thought I would be doing that. So I really got into biomechanics and engineering. And, uh, one of the, Faculty members uh, that my my undergraduate advisor was doing orthopedics research in this orthopedic biomechanics lab, and so I got into as an undergraduate and started uh, started making stuff and and assisting in the laboratory, and it was that was a lot of fun. It was also a great orthopedic biomechanics lab. When I tell people in orthopedics around here or or anywhere that I was an undergraduate in the lab, they just sort of like, wow. Because I'm like, oh, and so-and-so who's now the the director of the lab here was an, a grad student. And so-and-so who's president of the society was now was was a postdoc in the lab. And so-and-so who's the you know famous professor at ETH, he was a postdoc in the lab. You know, that's how I met all these people. Wow. So you were just
0: luckily in this crazy confluence of these, uh, what would go on to be the leaders in the field now. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's so, lucky. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, you take advantage of the opportunities you get. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. And
0: so after that, you, uh, you decided to, you know, make your career in research. I, yeah. I, I suppose you're thinking about academia and, yeah. and decided to apply for grad school. Yeah. And you got into
1: Stanford. Yeah. So coming back to... Oh, back I was ready back. to come back to California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Four years in Boston with the snow and everything was great, but um, it was, it's good to be back in California that time. So what did you work on at Stanford? So um, I joined Dennis Carter's lab and Dennis was, uh, spent a lot of time thinking about bone remodeling and the relationships between bo- mechanical stress and strain and bone remodeling. And my dissertation is all about... Instead of looking at bone remodeling from a you know sort of the millimeter scale, how does it change the bone structure? Um, my th- dissertation was all about how do we try and simulate or or model the activities of the cell populations that are doing the bone remodeling. So if you go back and look at my dissertation, it was a lot of computer simulations of you know how much bone is resorbed, how much bone is formed, how, what are these patterns, how do the pharmaceuticals we use to for osteoporosis influence that those patterns? What are the net, you know net results of those interactions? And then,
0: uh, yeah, so you had a lot of successful research output there. And so you started a lab, um, but not at Cornell initially. You were at Case Western. I was at
1: Case Western, yeah. Yeah,
0: so what was it like to, you know, go from being a grad student? I guess you probably did a postdoc or some training in between there. Yeah, so
1: I did did one postdoc in New York City. Uh, I was working with Mitch Schaffler at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine at the time. And the story I was telling everybody last night at dinner was that, you know, I was— I went, you know, the, the winter before I finished, I'd met Mitch at a conference and he's great. He's a great mentor, a great scientist. And I went out the, you know, like January and met with him and lined up my postdoc that I'd go to his lab. And then uh, in April that year, uh, I met my now wife and then, and, but she had two more years of medical school in California. So I went out to New York for a little over a year and then hustled back and did a second postdoc at Berkeley. Cool. Um, and so it closer. all worked out in the yeah. end. And uh Yeah. So what were the challenges starting your own lab? Yeah, so um, you're starting your own lab. You've got you know, you to buy all the equipment. You've got to you know, set the tone. Usually, you know, you know, before you get the, to set up your lab, right? you have this overall research direction or you, you, you probably want to have your directions for what, re- what research projects you're going to do so you can at least hit the ground running with writing the grants because it takes time to get those through. Um, so we had our, our initial research directions and, and just started running on them. And uh, just attracting students to the lab and, uh, and getting up the team. Um, you, know, I, uh, you know, I worked a lot with undergraduates, and I always have. And so some of the key hires in that first year were actually undergraduates to come into the lab. And so at least one guy, Evgeny Kachenko, um, was a freshman the year I started at K- Case Western. He joined the lab and stayed with us for four years, did a master's degree with us, and stayed with us for a few years afterwards. Hmm. Um, and really just a brilliant guy and, um, and really a pleasure to work with, too.
0: Something you've been really outspoken about, um, uh, also in writing, I came across an article that you wrote for Fox News is your identity as a Mexican American engineer. So how does that factor into your research?
1: Yeah, yeah. so you know when you're um, you know uh, even when I was growing up, so, you know if you're you're from California, you probably heard of these programs the co- uh, colleges have have called Mesa programs, and so I was involved in those in, in high school, and they'd take us on tours around. Probably my first visit to UC Davis was a, a trip with Mesa hmm. um, when I was in high school to check out the campus. And, um, and it, it's very telling that there just aren't that many people from our background who, who go into engineering. And it's, um, it's actually unfortunate, because I think there's so much that engineering has to offer. You know, and I like to tell people there are a couple things, right? Um, one of them is that, uh, you know, great thing about engineering as a profession is that it doesn't really matter where your background is, right? It matters what you can do. So you go in and you learn the techniques and you learn what you need to know, and it doesn't matter who your family is; they'll still hire you because they need somebody who knows that who has that skill set, and it's high paying. And so it's it's really great for um, for people coming from uh, traditionally. It's traditionally engineering has been this thing there. if you if you came from just a normal family, blue collar family, you could become an engineer, and that was your pathway into white collar and upper cl- upper upper middle class uh, salaries. And so it's a great opportunity for people to do. So by the
0: numbers, Mexican Americans are disproportionately uh, represented as engineers. But you're doing a number of activities to address that problem.
1: Yeah. So I've I've done a lot of work with the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. This is an organization I was uh, a student member and student officer of a of a student chapter when I was in grad school, and uh, and now I I work with the national organization and I've done things like organize the scientific sessions at their national meeting, organize sessions for, um, for junior faculty, um, to, to mentor the junior faculty and help them develop professionally as leader, future leaders in the field. And, uh, and I, and whenever I get a chance, I try and meet with students and, and tell them about how, my path so they know that it's possible.
0: So you're you're known for being a, a great mentor and have established uh, many people that have gone on to do great things from your lab. So what do you look for in in a, in a graduate student when they're coming to work with you?
1: Oh, that's changed so much over the over the years as I got more experienced. I think what I'm really looking for is that grit that the student has, um, that they have that they've gotten past the little bumps and is able to and, and are able to really push forward and do the next thing. Are you able to glean that off of
0: written applications, or this
1: is kind of... I wish I, I wish I could, but you got to really look at the at the person, right? And um, well, there's just this spectacular student years ago, and you you, know, you look at the at the the written information, and it's just like, whoa, oh, so you worked full time in your first two years of college while doing an engineering degree because you need, you wanted to support your family, you know. And it's like, well, that's the kind of person I want in my lab, right? That person who, um, who has just, who's not afraid to roll up his or her sleeves and make things happen. And that determination is in the long run is better, is more important than you know any test score or a specific GPA in a certain class or, or overall GPA. So I, that's, that's probably the number one thing for me with people I'd like to work with. Are there specific ways that you address
0: inequities and issues of inclusion in your lab?
1: Yeah, so um, so we I, we do a lot of work, you know, my lab and and the students in my lab. No matter what their background are, we often do outreach programs. Um, I do a lot of work with the graduate students at Cornell and um, who are from underrepresented groups. And again, just to to talk to them, make sure they know what what's possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I do spend a lot of time talking to students and creating an environment where where uh, people can really succeed. And and it's understood that you know. Um, you just need that grit and you need to be willing to, to work and, and make it happen and that, uh, and that we're all coming at this from a different background.
0: Yeah, you're a great example to follow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine you don't spend all of your day just studying the microbiome <laughs> and, and, and bone. Maybe you do, but what would uh,
1: our listeners be surprised to know about you uh, outside the lab? Oh, surprised to know me about me outside the lab. Um, so in the last, you know, sort of around this time, I started doing microbiology stuff. My wife got me onto these high-intensity interval training workouts, <laughs> and so, so uh, yeah. By the time you see me in the day, I've probably like had thirty or forty minutes with some, you know, uh, high-intensity uh, video video work workout. Nice. Right, and so I've already like m- most of my muscles are probably sore by the time you see me during <laughs> the day. Um, so that's one thing. But I guess the other thing is I just, I, you know, I got two two boys and I just pick up you know, whatever they're interested in mm-hmm. and spend a lot of time doing that. So, How old are they? Um, they're 11 and 13 right now. And so...
0: Pushing them to the
1: science thing or don't care? You know, give, making them able, right? It's funny. It's some, you know, my oldest is really into the computer programming. So, and he took to it the way I did, you know, when he was seven. He was just like, wow, this is great. And um, the youngest one, not so interested in that. But uh, there's other things he's interested in. So uh, So whether it's Boy Scouts or or um robotics team or, or uh swim team or rock climbing. These are the things we're doing we're up to right these days, right now. Cool. So. <laughs>
0: um okay, the the thing I like to close out with is is asking our guest, um maybe you could share the the last greatest thing that you watched or read or listened to.
1: Oh. Doesn't have to be uh with science. Yeah, yeah. Oh I have I have uh there's too many of them for me to think of right now. Um So what really influenced me, you know, uh, I'm on sabbatical right now in California. We drove cross country uh, this summer, and uh, we got a book on tape, and it was code. It was a book called Codebreaker, and it's about uh, Jennifer Doudna and the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9. And I've been thinking about that book nonstop. We listened to it on the on the road trip, and I've been thinking about sections of the book uh, the whole time, especially the section that goes over how the laboratory is how she organizes her laboratory and the, yeah. the sort of winding path to make that Nobel Prize winning discovery. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about um, not just how she did that, but, you know, when you read a history like that or a story like that, it's not about exactly what the person did. It's more about when they were in that situation, how did they decide to do these things? How did you decide to, oh, you're going to start looking at CRISPR. How do you, des- you know, what, what was it about that, that thing that made it interesting or you knew it would be an exciting thing to look at, mm. and so those kinds of questions pop up. And I was so excited about it that I actually bought a copy of the book for every member of my lab. <laughs> nice. And uh, and we read the, the the section that was about uh, how the lab was organized and how um, and how uh, and the, the pathway of discovery for that scientific discovery uh, together. And that was that was has been really influential. I keep you know thinking about it over and over again. Um, that process that she went through.
0: Oh, I've had it on my list for uh, ever since it came out. So maybe your yeah. rec will push it over. I'll have to check it out now. Um, okay, so where can people
1: uh, find you if they want to connect further? Uh, so my website is hernandezresearch.com. Um, and you can, of course, find me on the Cornell website as well. Cool, great. Thank you so
0: much for joining us and sharing about your expertise and your lab's work and, and everything else.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. It's great. <music>